Hello, welcome to the latest in the Baldison Capital podcast series. I am Ben Goldsmith and I am joined by all three Lovecraft's co-founders, which is a special treat and the first time we've ever had three people around the mic on the Balderton podcast. So setting records with Jerry Freeman, Edward Griffith and Nigel Whiteoak. Welcome. Morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's, the pleasure is all mine. Um, what I'd like to talk to you about today, as we've discussed before, is a lot of our uh, portfolio companies and a lot of companies in general have one founder, CEO figure, uh, kind of leading the company through uh, all of their different adventures. You have three, as you may have noticed, those are all here together. Uh, I wanted to know how that works, uh, and does that cause any issues, or does that give you, you know, three? are you three times as good? because there's three of you. Uh, and I'd like to start at the start. Uh, in a recent blog that I read from you, Cherry, soon after you guys came third in the Sunday Times Tech Track 100, which is awesome. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, something I read, which was, um, Edward, you came up with the initial idea, it seems, and then bought Cherry and Nigel in fairly quickly. How did that, how did that work? How did that process all come together? Well, actually, we, we've all known each other for the best part of 20 years. And this business is actually a, a function of some of the stuff we've all done before and done together. So it wasn't simply a question of a kind of light bulb over my head. You know, I've been having conversations with Nigel for five years about these kinds of ideas, particularly. And, um, and Cherry and I were involved in a lot of e-commerce businesses a while back. So I got started on something that we'd all spoken about before while they were busy with other things and uh, did that first stuff of kind of building tables in an empty room and hiring a couple of grads in a small office. And actually, the, you know, pretty much every day, I suppose, during that time, was bothering Nigel in his day job and harassing Cherry <laughs> and her family um, to say, you know, what am I doing here and how am I doing it? So I feel like they were really involved from the beginning. I think when we got to, must have been like, a million run rate or something in that little small office, it was kind of increasingly obvious to all of us, actually, because the conversations were fluid, that this was something very real. So it wasn't simply a question of me, you know, cold calling them. Um, this was a question of them kind of, you know, stepping up their involvement from the very beginning. Um, and actually, they are family to me and very, very close to me. So it's actually a really kind of natural and easy thing. How did you first meet? So that's a good question. We, um, Cherry and I met at university. We were all at Cambridge together, um, but Nigel and I uh, met because the three of us actually worked together at the Boston Consulting Group, which was all our first job after university. You know, I used to sit on the edge of Nigel's desk and plot our our way to independence and to make the kind of business we wanted to work in. And uh, it's it's great that we had the chance to do that. So, Nigel, if we pass the mic to you, it seems like there was still a little bit of convincing to go because you say that uh, you needed to coax Nigel out of his job he was currently doing and, and similar with Cherry. How did that How did that work? It didn't It didn't really take very much coaxing. So one of the <laughs> things I'd been helping Edward with a little bit was uh, some of the early marketing and analytics. So I'd, I'd uh, helped with some of the early recruitment, but also uh, I set up some of the funnels actually on Google Analytics. So I had access so I could see the data and I was like, this looks great. Um, there's really something here. Um, there's also a little secret that my mum is a mass, massive mad knitter. Uh, I saw her sitting there with a, a raggedy old paper knitting pattern and thought, hmm, this could do with improving. Uh, and actually then looking at the pattern, realised that every single knitting pattern has got a branded list of ingredients in it. And as uh, someone who spent a lot of my career thinking how to 
cross-sell and upsell to customers things based on what they bought, I was like, wow, this is a market where you don't have to second guess what someone's going to want to buy. It's printed out there in black and white what someone's going to need. I was like, this is a terrific opportunity. So, terrific opportunity. I'm sure we're all in agreement there. But um, where did that original idea come from? And in that question, is it inherently difficult? Because there seems to be a perception that lots of people that knit and crochet are kind of old, and that demographic doesn't potentially overlap with uh, that of online users of online communities and marketplaces. I'll let, I'll let Edward explain that one, because I, I think his partner's not quite that old. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting at home watching uh, my better half making and the frustrations of where she'd find design and inspiration uh, from a variety of sources online and offline in small stores. And she was repeatedly kind of telling me that the both that inspiration experience and the commerce experience and the and actually the opportunities to share were really limited online. And I needed some convincing, I'm ashamed to say, but actually the closer I looked at it, the more convinced I was. And then uh, talking to Nigel and Terry, we became more and more convinced that this was like a sleeping giant of a market that hadn't really been touched. And um, that was actually an extraordinary opportunity. One of the things that we find most exciting about this market is the fact that it's hardly been touched by technology. And if you think about... Uh, making things with your hands, handicraft, it is in some respects as antithetical to digital work as you can get. And bringing those two quite different cultures together under one roof in Soho, uh, coders and crafters, has created the most exciting and I think unique place to work. And I think is why there is such an amazing opportunity to disrupt this market. And Edward, you've said before that there's a, a craft renaissance afoot. You know, I read that in, in, a, in an interview you gave last year. What, what's driving that? I think there's, some, I mean, there's something about the web, I think, actually does create more opportunities both to share inspiration and to learn. So whereas people were dependent on word of mouth through the generations, now there's this kind of growing body of both design acumen and educational possibilities online, <clears throat> which is quite hard to navigate sometimes. And I think we've got an incredible opportunity to put something more coherent together. But there is, I think, more interest in it. And I think as our lives become more dominated by technology, there's a, that's yearning is a too strong a word, but a yearning for something a little bit slower, a little bit more meditative, a bit more um, in touch with where we've come from as opposed to driving forward into the new and the unknown. And I think there's something very consoling and therapeutic about making stuff. It's very primal as an experience. Do you make things? I'm a, I'm, uh, I'm a baker, actually, so um, I do. I love to bake. Uh, when I have time, I have to say it's one of the ironies of launching a crafts business is I probably have a little bit less time <laughs> than I had to make. But, um, yeah, there's, there's always a lot of making going on in my house. Yeah, I had to get my mum to teach me how to knit, so I'm, uh, uh, I've am finished a two-tone scarf, uh, which I have to embarrass to say is actually falling apart at the join, uh, but it's uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, I've got uh, my next knitting project on the go on my desk, actually. I'm surrounded by endless kids' craft, cake decorating, and quite a lot of paper craft. Cake decorating sounds like lots of fun. To refocus in on, you know, how does the, the three-founder system work almost, when it comes to something that you know, a lot of our listeners and a lot of our portfolio companies would have done, or all of them would have done, is raising funding. Uh, and often when that's been described before, there's someone internally that really drives and leads that process. Has that been the way with Lovecraft, or do you try and share that, share that equally? Cherry does it. 
<laughs> Anyone who is going to contemplate investing in not just in our business, in any business, they're they're backing the founding team and actually increasingly the lead, the the complete leadership team. So the fundraising process has to involve all three of us quite significantly, but I take the lead in terms of running the process um, and Edward and Nigel support all the way through at the appropriate moments. But I think clearly what that does require is quite a lot of trust between the founders that, um, I mean, we each take responsibility for different parts of the business and we trust each other to get on with it, uh, which I think genuinely does multiply by three the capacity of the founding team. But you do need to know each other well and you need to have a lot of confidence and respect for each other's skills. Is it as sort of clearly delineated as that when it comes to other parts of the business? Like, uh, is you know, is Cherry in charge of one thing and Edward in charge of another thing and Nigel in charge of another? I mean, we, we have functional reporting lines, but I think actually the reality is that having known each other for 20 years, we have a really, really strong sense of particular types of activity that each of us is uniquely positioned to do well at. So... You can almost come up with anything and each of us will have a pretty, all of us will have a pretty innate sense of who's going to do it best. If there's some good negotiation to be done, you can guarantee Cherry's going to get the best result. If there's a big sales job to be done, there's no one that really beats Edward. So um, I think it's, um, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear usually what tasks are going to best suit each of our individual skills. And to drill into one of those, those tasks that... Uh a lot of our founders and a lot of early stage founders are, uh, usually grapple with the one of hiring and, and building a team. Uh, often company culture is led by, if not a personality, then certainly some, uh, some je ne sais quoi that's come from that early founding team, some big idea. How do you uh, make that work with, with a three-founder, three-founder approach? I think part of the what is kind of consequence of knowing each other for 20 years is that and being friends. So mm. Genuinely, we share a lot of values together. And whilst I think we want slightly different things from our working experience and from the company as a whole, um, we're pretty aligned about the kind of company culture that we want to build. A friend once told me that it didn't really matter what he was building, what technology, what market he was addressing, but the most important thing to his daily life, he had smart and kind people around him. And we've done pretty well at, at cons- kind of insisting on that as we've built the team. I think has had an extraordinary impact on the daily experience that I have, I mean, apart from Terry and Nigel. <laughs> um, and I think we are entrepreneurs who are building, building process, building marketing, building technology, building products, building operations. And therefore, we also instill something about that making into our world, particularly because we serve making markets. So uh, that's how we articulate what we're about. We're about that journey of making and we're about building the right kind of team around us to support that hard work. But we were all quite aligned on that going in, um, quite aligned on the satisfaction about making something work well, the satisfaction of growing very quickly, and the satisfaction of having wonderful people around us. To your question as to how do, how do you do that when there are three different founders, you know, we, it, whether it's recruitment and culture or, in fact, almost anything else, typically will agree on what matters and how we want to approach it. And then specifically on the question of recruitment, we know what the values are that we're looking for. Edward and Nigel interview every single person who we make an offer to, and I trust them 
to make the right decision, knowing what it is that we've all agreed is important. And then I will meet any new joiners within the first couple of weeks of them joining and reinforce the tone that they'll have set at interview. But it does involve some level of, of trust and delegation and sharing of responsibilities. We can't all make every single decision um, together. That, uh, you've, you've almost answered a question I was going to ask next, which is procedurally, how do you grow that as your team scales? And you say that still uh, Edward and Nigel will talk to each candidate before they're hired. Do you think that can continue as Lovecraft continue to grow? Is that, is that scalable? Absolutely. I and mean, we're not hiring tens of thousands of people. There's plenty of capacity to interview each person before they get made an offer. And it's incredibly important. I mean, it's a business which is built on talent um, and the right culture. And the one thing that we can't compromise on is the smart kind makers that we're recruiting to build this incredible business. So, so far, it seems you guys are wonderful friends. You share uh, a lot of shared values. You share a lot of shared ambition for the business. It all seems pretty rosy, uh, building a business with three people. What's the hardest bit, honestly, about there being uh, three co-founders around the table? Have there been any really, you know, difficult moments? I guess one of the consequences of being good friends and being close is there is occasionally a little bit of a squabble about something. Uh, we don't always think exactly the same thing on everything. So there is some coming together of different viewpoints. I would say it always results in a better decision, but maybe the process is slightly more involved than it might otherwise be because there's more people to bring on side. And what's the best way to resolve those kind of issues? Because that seems uh, very sensible, but there'll be a lot of people who are in a, a way earlier stage than Lovecraft listening to this podcast, thinking of founding a business or have just founded a business with people they're close to. What's the best way to resolve those potentially thornier but important issues, viewing things dispassionately? How, do, how does that work? Honestly. <laughs> no, I say data. <laughs> data usually, right? So actually, I mean, there are some questions of style, some questions of value sometimes at the margin, but actually 95% of questions can be resolved with a better answer, with better data. Like if you want to try and make a decision about one way or the other, then figure it out, you know. Um, we're, we're all three of us very analytical, rational beings, mostly. Um, and I think actually we've been able to come to some pretty strong answers by challenging each other, and it's a culture we're, we're proud of in that respect, I think. Also, it's not just the three of us leading this business. There is, there's an incredibly talented leadership team, very experienced individuals. Most of the decisions now will be taken as a, as a management team, not as individuals. I mean, things like culture and recruitment, they're sort of non-negotiable. Um, so you don't have quite that same sort of participatory decision-making process. But for most things to do with business strategy, business execution business operations, it won't just be the three of us that are making those decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's undoubted upsides and downsides of running a business with friends. Um, on the upside, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you've, if you've had an argument, you just give each other a hug and re remind each other that you are friends. But sometimes passions can run high because we are all passionate. And I think it's a real positive because you're not scared of having those difficult conversations. And I think in, in our experience, whenever there's been some element of disagreement, it's usually actually been when we sat and talked about it, um, some very small point that actually in each of our own minds has been blown up to some, some, some extreme. And usually sitting down and, as Edward says, looking at the data just helps us to work through it and come up with a, 
a better answer overall. So one last question, as I noticed we're running out of time slightly, is if there's a, a group of potential co-founders out there or very early co-founders that have been friends for a while before they set off on this journey, is there a piece of advice that you, you could give them that will help them on their way? Or potentially that they should ask themselves as to whether it's the right decision. Are they, are they founding with the right people? I think to reinforce Cherry's point, the key thing is to make sure that you trust each other. And I think in order to trust each other well, you've got to understand yourself very well and to know the things that you are good at, but also to recognize where the other, the other founders have actually got better skills to be able to, to do things that, that they're better suited to. Thank you all very much, Cherry, Edward, Nigel. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks very much.